Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Lena Khan, the new chairman of the Federal Trade Commission, is changing things up at the FTC with numerous process reforms that are altering the way cases are filed, publicly discussed, debated, and ultimately decided at the commission. Staffers are no longer permitted to present publicly on ongoing cases. Commissioners are not being fully informed by commission staff as they are having to look beyond the agency for key data on their work. Internal legal experts who usually oversee fact-finding are being replaced at the chair's discretion. And a commission-wide consensus is no longer required to launch formal investigations. Overall, the FTC is becoming less democratic and subject to the desire of one individual, the chair. Today, I am joined by my AEI colleague, Mark Jamison, for a discussion on the FTC's future with Bilal Syed. Bilal served as the director of the Office of Policy Planning under the most recent administration's FTC, as well as under Chairman Tim Muris from 2001 to 2004. He's also taught antitrust law as an adjunct professor at the George Mason University School of Law and recently joined the Tech Freedom Team as a senior adjunct fellow. Bilal joins the podcast to discuss the FTC's recent reforms and what they mean for the future of the commission and antitrust law as a whole. Please enjoy today's podcast and note there will be a part two released later this week. Well, thank you for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. And thank you to Mark Jamison, also known as Dr. J, for co-hosting today's podcast with me. I'd like to start with some really basic level to this conversation about what the Federal Trade Commission does and why does it matter both to consumers and to corporations and everyone involved in the U.S. government? Well, it's a good question. I think, I think you can think of the Federal Trade Commission as one of two federal uh, agencies focused on competition across a broad range of industries. The other federal agency or executive branch department that focuses on competition in the same way the FTC does is the antitrust division of the Department of Justice. The two are a little bit different in their setup. The FTC is thought of as a legislative agency and as a five-member commission at least theoretically, oversees the work of what's mostly career staff. Although there's a chairman, each commissioner gets a vote, again, in the ordinary course, about how the agency sort of directs and uses its resources. The antitrust division, of course, is part of the executive branch, and the officials in the antitrust division report to the head of the Department of Justice, and sort of there's sort of a single decision maker there. The FTC is also sort of the nation's only broad-based consumer protection agency, you know, dealing with fraud and advertising claims, as, as well as many other things, privacy issues that arise across industries, across the economy. There are other federal agencies, uh, regulatory agencies that deal, arguably deal with competition-related issues, but they're relatively narrow in their scope. And there are other federal agencies that deal with consumer protection issues, but also relatively narrow in, in scope as compared to the agency. So how do is the decision made when something is addressed by the Federal Trade Commission versus the Department of Justice? Well, it's a good question. So, of course, on the consumer protection side, you don't usually run into conflicts with the Department of Justice, but you might run into potential conflicts with other agencies. and often. There's an allocation of responsibility 
sometimes by statute, sometimes by what you might call a memorandum of understanding between the FTC and that other agency. Occasionally, there are overlapping investigations, but generally, I think the FTC and its, you know, other what I'll call sister agencies in the federal government, you know, try to avoid duplication. And it's usually through, you know, some allocation of industries or issues that often rely on expertise or resources or, you know, the strength of their statutory authority. So, so there's an interagency process sometimes if an issue comes up? Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and many of these have now been sort of I'll say codified in a sense through memorandums of understanding. And of course, the staff of the commission are usually the folks involved in these discussions and allocation of you know who should do what. So most of that work to avoid duplication is done, you know, sort of at the staff level and doesn't rise to the commissioner level. Okay, so Blau, over the past two to three months, there have been a lot of changes at the Federal Trade Commission. We'll try to get to as many of these changes as we can, but just kind of give us the big picture of what's going on to get us started, please. Well, I think the big picture is that the incoming chair and at least one of the retained commissioners and maybe both of the other Democratic commissioners really have a different view of the role of the FTC than the previous commissions, whether they be chairman or commissioners, and whether they be Republican-appointed commissioners or Democratic-appointed commissioners. I think the current chair, uh, Lena Khan, and her Democratic colleagues, including uh, especially Commissioner Rohit Chopra and Commissioner Rebecca Slaughter, just believe there's been insufficient enforcement over the last 30 to 40 years on on both the competition side and the consumer protection side. And they are aggressively moving, I think, to undo what I'll call the analytical framework and, I'd say, procedural guardrails that I think they believe, you know, supported this sort of under-enforcement of the antitrust laws. In many respects, it appears to me, this is a replay of what happened in the late 60s, continuing through the early to mid-70s, even the late 70s, you know, which is to increase the scope of the activity the FTC will both find problematic and also attempt to increase the scope of parts of the economy that is under ordinary course regulation by the FTC. Most of the matters that the FTC has done over the last 40 or so years, you know, have been enforcement oriented in that, you know, they identify, you know, a potential violation of law, even sometimes a potential violation of a consumer protection rule and proceed with an investigation and evaluation of evidence and then an enforcement action or not against the respondents in that investigation. What you see now is the beginning of an effort to put more of the economy under a rule-based regulation, basically, where I think you will move away from the case-by-case method 
into sort of a regulatory model where firms of any type, you know, have to adhere to certain rules. And if they don't adhere to those rules, be found in, in violation. This, I think, is, a, you know, consistent with their approach that there's been under enforcement of the law. And that one reason for that is that, you know, enforcement actions one by one take too much time and don't give you much, you know, so-called bang for the buck. So the, the key change, I think, is moving to a rule-based system where the FTC drafts and promulgates rules that, you know, apply industry-wide, economy-wide, and then looking for adherence to those rules. And that would be a significant change and not something the agency has done or at least attempted to do since the 1970s. There was a recent change that grabbed headlines about the rescinding of the bipartisan Obama-era FTC statement that was adopted in 2015, that the agency follow antitrust law as it was evolved in court. And this seems to have several implications. One is that the signal from the FTC commissioners that want to get rid of the consumer welfare standard for antitrust as it prevailed, you know, as you just mentioned, for, for decades. So what is the standard and what are the implications for making this major change? Well, it's a good question. You know, the statement attempted to put towards a framework with respect to how the agency enforced its mandate to prohibit unfair methods of competition. Now, the phrase unfair methods of competition is not exactly or not at all the language used in the Sherman Act, you know, the the core antitrust law. And so there'd been a long debate over, you know, to what extent the FTC Act, which prohibited unfair methods of competition, was different than the Sherman Act, which, you know, in short, prohibited restraints of trade or unreasonable restraints of trade as as sort of uh, discussed by the courts and attempts to monopolize or monopolization that, you know, arose from, you know, what I'll call bad conduct. It's widely understood that there are differences between, you know, what is an unfair method of competition and what the Sherman Act prohibits. But identifying exactly what those differences are and then implementing that difference has has proven sort of difficult over the life of the FTC. You know, up until the early 1980s and early to mid-1980s, if you include the case law, the FTC was somewhat aggressive in articulating a standard of unfair methods of competition that was broader than the Sherman Act prohibitions. And this led, I think, to a lot of silly cases being brought by the FTC over the first 50 to 60 years, 70 years of, of its existence. So starting in the 1980s, there was a greater sense that the agency should be cautious in departing from what were then developing principles of antitrust law that focused on harm to consumers and harm to the, the competitive process as opposed to harm harm to competitors. And that sort of culminated in, the, in this uh, statement from 2015 or so that tried to articulate sort of a framework, relatively high-level framework in, it, in its wording, but, but because it attached to the case law, you know, in some sense, quite helpful. 
attempted to articulate a framework that incorporated the principles that had developed in Sherman Act cases in particular about how to evaluate the competitive effects of conduct by largely large or so-called dominant firms. And so it was an attempt, really, to do, I think, two or three things, harmonize the development of the FTC's unfair methods of competition cases with the Sherman Act, the cases brought by the Department of Justice or by private plaintiffs or even under by states enforcing, enforcing the Sherman Act. It was an attempt to both harmonize it and continue to develop the law in that direction. It is something that, you know, the agency, as a matter of its discretion, had been doing over 30 to 40 years, you know, sort of bring, you know, bring stronger cases that had a better economic foundation that built on and relied on sort of the framework that the courts had developed with respect to the Sherman Act. There are very few FTC conduct cases that go through the, the federal court system. So there was less development of, you know, sort of the unfair method, what unfair methods of competition meant. So that, that was the purpose, you know, to sort of help harmonize the law, give guidance to business and guidance to courts about how the agency would continue to enforce its mandate to prohibit unfair methods of competition. Just so I'm clear, so that was the purpose of the 2015 statement. That's right. That's right. So can you explain how the change makes a big difference for everyone going forward? Well, right. So the change could make a significant difference if what the change or the pulling of the statement, if what it means is that the commission will go back to a, a much broader interpretation of what an unfair method of competition is, one that's not based on the development of the Sherman Act over the last 30 to 40 years. What you've seen over the last 30, 40 years in the courts is a better analytical framework for evaluating whether certain conduct is anti-competitive. And if the FTC is sort of intends to move away from that learning, I think what you do is fall back into what it was doing at least in terms of its you know, success or value in what it was doing in its first 50, 60 years of existence, which was focusing on how conduct by firms affected not the competitive process or competition or consumers, but how that conduct affected competitors. And that, I think, led to a sorry history of the FTC's case selection in general, up through the 1980s. People forget, I think, or people don't know, that there were a number of reports over the history of the FTC identifying the agency as failing right, to live up to its congressional purpose. And if you look back at those reports, you know, there's one thing that's in common, which is that the agency's case selection was weak and unlikely to have significant effect, you know, in the areas it was tasked with acting. The most important one was, for two reasons, the most important one was done by the ABA in 1969, which itself led to changes at the FTC that occurred throughout the 1970s, where the agency, in fact, you know, attempted 
to use this authority much more aggressively than it had in the past and much more broadly. Well, that almost led to the elimination of the FTC as a federal agency because it had you know, moved into so many areas of what I call a regulatory model that it didn't have the resources to do, nor did it have the expertise to do. So the abandonment of the consumer welfare standard you know, which focuses on harm to consumers as opposed to harm to competitors, just foreshadows this return to a, what I call an overaggressive but unfocused FTC using a regulatory model and a model that protects firms from hard competition rather than consumers from anti-competitive behavior. A really interesting point. So one of the issues that has has been hot in the, the media anyway, and the new chairperson has expressed interest in this issue as well in some of her earlier work, and that is the idea that some of the big tech companies have been acquiring small companies that could be potential competitors, could rise up and and, and provide some actual competition. What are your thoughts on that? And what do you think the the FTC might do in that space? Well, I, I have a few thoughts on this. Look, I think I think it's important the FTC, as well as the antitrust division, look to identify and potentially challenge acquisitions that will eliminate eliminate a strong future competitor to the acquiring firm or, or one of the firms to the merger. We operate in an innovative economy where firms develop new products, new ways of distributing products. And and that's been, I think, the driving force of our economy for a long time. So if, again, allegedly dominant firms acquire future competitors and then either seek to bury what those firms are doing or in some way eliminate the competition that would come from them, that is a problem, right? That is a problem. But, of course, there are some difficulties with identifying a future competitor. Not every firm that is started is a future competitor or is a future significant player or even meaningful player in the markets they operate in, right? There are large hurdles to developing from sort of a startup to an effective competitor. And so that makes this the analysis of such acquisitions more difficult and more speculative than acquisitions of existing competitors. And the analysis is further complicated by the fact that because it's sort of uncertain whether these smaller companies will develop into competitive threats, even if they have you know, interesting technology or interesting product, one thing the agencies do consider and should consider more is does the merger in fact bring that product or technology to market either quicker or make it more likely that, that that technology or product comes to market. And so the concern has been that the agency doesn't have sort of a framework for evaluating such transactions. But that's just incorrect. Often when you hear about this issue in congressional hearings or in you know, what I'll call the popular but you know, educated press, people talk about Facebook's acquisition of Instagram or WhatsApp. As acquisitions that you know may have eliminated a you know potential or future competitor. Now those 
case those the FTC has brought a case against Facebook that that is intended to to look at those acquisitions. So I won't comment on those specifically. But the agency has in the last 20 to 25 years brought by my count something in the range of 100 what I'd call potential or future competition cases, right? And they've done this across a variety of industries and, you know, have largely been successful, you know, in preventing the acquisition or the combination of an existing competitor and a future competitor in those, you know, roughly 100 matters. So I think the agency leadership now may be operating under the misconception that, and, and the Congress as well, you know, that the FTC or the FTC on the antitrust division, you know, need either greater resources or greater statutory authority to challenge such transactions. And the record should put that in perspective, right? There, there are, as I said, by my count, roughly 100 potential competition or future competition cases that the FTC has brought over the last 20 to 25 years. I worked for the Distilled Spirits Council back in the 1990s, and that's when they were doing the merger of, well, became Diageo, the biggest alcohol company in the world. And at the time, the holdup was, I was talking to somebody inside the FTC, and he said, well, they're, they're, they're trying to decide if they have too much whiskey and tequila in the same portfolio. And I thought, have any of these people ever been to a bar? Because people that drink tequila and people that drink whiskey are very different consumers. Great irony is the tequila market has really raised its game in the United States. You know, it might have been available in Mexico, but now I'm like, huh, you might have had a point, <laughs> even though it's all good product. But another thing that's come out recently is the potential of spending a lot more money, taxpayers' money, over at the Federal Trade Commission with a big boost of a billion dollars to the agency. And I know I've been a I've been a huge proponent of if we want them to do all these things, they need to be able to staff up and have the funds available, especially to enhance technology. But it seems like they're going from zero to 180 really quick with a billion dollars. I mean, tell us how you think they're going to, that would enhance or enable better decision making. Well, it has, it has become sort of a common view of many people that the FTC in particular, but, but both antitrust agencies are understaffed and underfunded. You know, from my experience, both in government and outside of government, I tend to agree with that. It does seem that during some periods of a merger wave, as an example, the agency is forced to devote resources to handle a review of, you know, mergers and has the effect of putting, you know, other investigations, you know, on hold or delaying them. And that is probably problematic. Most of the people at the FTC work very hard. I won't say they all work the hours that you would work in private practice, but they do work very hard. And I think, you know, some additional people would probably be helpful. I think, though, that, that you know, one argument made in, in support of this idea that the FTC needs more resources is that the agency is, you know, significantly smaller than it was than at the beginning of the Reagan administration, you know, 40 years ago. Also, the economy has grown substantially since then, right? And, and, and this is all 
evidence of under resources there. Is that a policy design or is that attrition or what, what what's the cause of the Well, I think I think it was an originally sort of a policy design in that there was a view that the agency was doing way too much prior to the Reagan administration and had become bloated and unfocused. Now, you know, you can compare these numbers not only to the pre-Reagan administration, but the pre-Nixon administration. You know, it's not it wasn't that there was a huge spike in 1979. It's that the agency was, you know, had had a lot of people doing a lot of things that I think in retrospect were not valuable things for them to do. And so I think the agency, both for budgetary reasons, you know, government wide and what I call policy reasons, you know, was was slimmed down during the Reagan administration. And it has grown, you know, significantly since then, but but not to the personnel level prior to the Reagan administration. So the budget's not commensurate to what you need for talent, it sounds? Well, it's it's not. I mean, some of this change in personnel, of course, is a reflection of, you know, technology. There's far less support for lawyers than you had in the past, but most lawyers are doing their own typing now than, than maybe they were doing. <laughs> you mean the, this Deno pool's gone away? <laughs> well, so things like that, you know, things okay. like that. But, you know, the, people do work hard there. And one thing I've been struck with over the last 20 years is, you know, both agencies tend to do the same number of merger challenges, you know, every year. Right now, it's not exactly the same, but it's rare that an agency is going to do more, you know, annually more than, you know, 25 to 28 merger challenges. And when that continues over to me, when, when you see that over a long period of time, that suggests to me there might be some resource constraint, you know, because the number of mergers goes up and down over the business cycle, for example. But the, the number of cases the agency brings tend to move within a fairly narrow band. And now I'm not saying all those cases are good cases, but it does strike me that if you see over a 20 year period, a, a roughly consistent set of cases it does suggest to me maybe there's some resource constraints there. So resources devoted to faster enforcement, faster investigations that would allow for speedier investigations seem like positive to me. Resources that would be used to enact rules that govern broad swaths of the economy strike me as a bad use of extra money. And, you know, the FTC is in competition with other agencies for personnel, and some agencies are on a higher pay scale, and that may, you know, affect the ability of the FTC to bring in people. And so I think, you know, a higher pay scale will probably probably justified too. But, you know, an additional $100 million a year, I mean, that would be an increase of, you know, roughly 30% of their budget year over year, that would be significant to add. And I could see some real inefficiencies with a 33 or 30% increase in the budget. I think something a little bit more measured might be better managed. You just listened to part one of a conversation with AEI's Mark Jamison and former director of the Office of Policy Planning at the FTC, Bilal Syed, where we discussed numerous FTC internal reforms that will perpetually change how the Federal Trade Commission operates. Please join us for part two, which will air later this week.